Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. From Nola Pizza in the Nola Brewing Tap Room on Chapatula Street in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Rashidi, Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Rashidi. Welcome to Out to Lunch. According to most recent statistics, under 400,000 people live in Orleans Parish. In a regular year, around 19 million people come to visit us. These tourists spend a total of close to $10 billion. This reportedly contributes a massive 40% of the city's annual tax revenue. Is having a tourist-dependent economy good for us or bad for us? Well, that depends on who you ask. Many people who work in hospitality point out that their jobs are poorly paid with few or any benefits, and there's no job security. And they claim that a tourist-based economy traps them and the city in a cycle of poverty that does nothing but perpetuate a glaring wealth gap. On the other hand, people in organizations that promote New Orleans tourism claim tourism is vital. They say that without tourism, our individual taxes would have to increase by thousands of dollars a year and our entire city economy would be strained to the point of collapse. Which side of the argument is true? We're gonna put that question to Dr. Andrew Ward. Dr. Ward is an assistant professor of political science and international development at Tulane University, and he specializes in a branch of practical study called sustainable tourism. Andrew, welcome out to lunch. Thank you so much, Peter. I've been a longtime listener and a big fan. <laughs> Thank you. In 2018, we introduced you to Allison Albert Ward. Allison had quit her job as an accountant and founded a company called Pet Crew, making costumes for pets. Now, that has turned out to be a good move. Today, Pet Crew costumes are sold in 600 independent stores and several mass retailers in the United States. They're also sold internationally. Outside of China, Pet Crew is the biggest pet costume company in the world. But even after achieving world domination, Pet Crew is not slowing down. They've formed partnerships with Hasbro, Sesame Street, and others, and their business continues to grow by hundreds of percent a year. Allison, Pet Crew is quite a success story, and welcome back to Out to Lunch. Hey, thanks. I'm glad to be here again. If you're a regular listener of Out to Lunch, you might have noticed that on each show, we usually invite guests who have something in common. So you might be wondering what the link could possibly be between sustainable tourism and pet costumes. Well, there is one, marriage. Andrew Ward and Allison Albert Ward are married to each other. <laughs> Allison and Andrew, we'll get to what kind of business conversations y'all have over the dinner table, but let's start by talking about tourism. Other than a music festival or Mardi Gras, most of the millions of tourists who visit New Orleans don't come here for any specific reason. While they're here, they might visit a cemetery or go to the zoo or take a swamp tour, but they're not the principal reasons folks come here. Mostly tourists come to enjoy just being here, eating in restaurants, listening to live music, and being part of the party atmosphere in the French Quarter. Most of the bars, clubs, and restaurants that tourists visit while they're here are small businesses that are independently owned. People who work in these types of hospitality businesses are generally poorly paid 
and many live on tips, and that's ju not just in New Orleans, but nationwide. So Andrew, given these constraints, even if as a city we wanted to improve the lives of people who are on the front lines and to a great extent are our tourist industry, what could we realistically do? Well, first I would take issue with the idea that they don't come here for a specific reason. Overwhelmingly, people come here for a sense of transcending themselves, to get the hell out of wherever they've been before <laughs> and to experience a new version of themselves. Maybe they come from you know, a cold Midwestern winter state and they come down here and they get to do something that they never thought they'd be able to do, namely hold a hurricane or a hand grenade on Bourbon Street with various parts of their body exposed going, Wah! because that's not allowed at the garden party that they go to back in Des Moines. But thank God for Bourbon Street. Again, a transcendent <laughs> other, it's a, it's a temple. New Orleans is a pilgrimage site. People come here to experience and feel and be something nowhere else in the continental United States allows them to. So there's a, a hyper-specificity that goes into why people choose here rather than Orlando, rather than D.C. or anywhere in your home state of Massachusetts, to be honest. That is, that <laughs> we is right. We accept the Puritans and we invite them to be weird <laughs> much more organically than they would with the forced weirdness of Austin, much more than the glitz and glamour and forced syphilis of Las Vegas. By the way, Puritans were a pain in the neck. Just wanted to let yeah. you know. I wasn't around them, but it always seemed that way. <laughs> Notwithstanding, what could we realistically do? The question has to come internally from the workers in the tourism industry itself. It ha the solution must be from the 90,000 men and women in the tourism industry who have been slaving away, I use that term intentionally, uh, at sharecropping wages in order to please all the people who come to the state and mostly to please the fat cats at the top of the tourism industry in New Orleans itself. Those boosters who use those terrifying scare tactics saying, well, if we didn't put all of our eggs in the tourism basket, we'd be doomed. Everything would be over. Those people need to be gone. And we need to be listening to the workers in New Orleans. And they need to unite, they need to organize, and they need to tear down the slaughterhouse of their old lives, as Clifford Odets would say, and let freedom really ring. They need to organize. Now, Allison, this is going to be tough to follow, but uh, <laughs> people who manufacture products for kids market them to kids, and the kids then pressure their parents to buy them. No kid needs a PlayStation or an Xbox, but you can see why they want them, and you can understand why an adult buys one for a kid. Now, no cat or dog needs to dress up in, as a pirate or cookie monster, but the motivation of the person who's buying that costume is a little less obvious than the parent who's buying the Xbox. Why do people want to dress up their pets in costumes? Has there always been a market for this, or have you created it? So there's always been a market for it. Uh, the first dressed up cat was, I think, in 3400 BC in <laughs> Egypt, found in a tomb. Ah. So it's been around for a few centuries, you might say, but only more recently in the 80s and 90s did this start to develop into an actual pet costume market that can be sold in mass retailers, not just home sewings or, you know, gold-laden costumes and tombs. Um, <laughs> so the reason why people are buying pet costumes today is mostly to bolster social media accounts. During the pandemic, people were adopting animals at a higher rate than pre-pandemic days, and for self-entertainment, would dress their pets up to take a picture for pleasure. It's a single-use product that might have a few more times out of their own costume bins or closets for their pets, but it's really just for the human enjoyment, and every now and then we do get a dog that loves to dress up and has a good time doing it. <laughs> now, you mentioned the pandemic, and that was one of the surprising numbers out of this. They, the pet supply business did better than it was doing before, right? 
It did. It boomed. And on top of that, Pet Crew had a pivot during the pandemic. Uh, we were always a hard goods company working in pet costumes, Halloween being our main season. Uh, but we switched over into treats. And so we started working with Sesame Street, developing out treat lines that would be Cookie Monsters dog cookies. And we started selling them in mass retailers and we started to see our numbers for treat lines and advent calendars with Sesame Street growing and growing until it's starting to eclipse our hard goods line. And so what we decided to do was, well, the market's really moving in this line of licensed products and licensed consumables for pets. So what's next? Well, I just uh, got off a call today with Paramount Studios and we're working with our licensing team to develop out Garfield cat treats for 2023. And we also are developing a whole line of under the umbrella called VitaCat, which is dedicated towards feline health for feline, they're called cat chews because you legally can't say supplements uh, or cat vitamins. So they're cat chews with natural ingredients aimed to help certain aspects of a feline health. And we're coupling that with uh, cat food called Hooked by VitaCat which is a sustainably sourced line in Western Canada. Excuse me, excuse me, did you just say sustainably? <laughs> what do you mean by sustainable? We use that word all over the place and it's never been clearly defined. <laughs> well, we monitor during pandemic with Pet Crew our goods manufacturing practices, which you can identify in five regions, which are your people, your premises, your processes, your products, and your procedures. So in Canada, the government, going back to your original question with Andrew, they have a thing that you employers can be certified for certified living wages. So it denotes which employers in Canada pay all of their employers employees a living wage. Can you imagine if tourism industry bosses in New Orleans were compelled to provide a living wage? I mean, our state doesn't even have a, a state minimum wage. And then all those uh, bartenders and waiters and waitresses are making two thirteen an hour. I mean, it's highway robbery. It's criminal. It's time to raise wages for them. We need to model ourselves in the tourism industry just like the sustainable cat food industry out of Canada, by God. What? Now, Andrew, <laughs> getting back to my questions, uh, you. when I think of, uh, I'm looking at uh, hospitality workers, I think, you know, they don't earn enough, they don't have enough in assets or wealth. But you take that, like, a number of other steps in terms of what we which should look at that, uh, their, their economic health. Unquestionably. So if we admit, which even the most, you know, especially the most ardent boosters of the industry in the city say, that we are reliant upon tourism, and we learn just how reliant we were over the pandemic, pandemic right. uh, we learned that lesson many times. We learned that after Katrina. We learned that, you know, with the downturns in the economy. We learned that with the oil bust in the 80s. Yet, as many times as we learn the lesson, we don't seem to remember it very well. So if the industry is our greatest asset and the workers there in it are our most valued people, our culture bearers and the, 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 truly the citizen ambassadors of the state, they need to be treated the best of any other uh, aspect of the industry. They need a living wage, and they need to be able to make the decisions of where all the revenue from the industry goes. So is it going to go to uh, revamping the uh, public transportation system in order to ensure that people who live in New Orleans East, who are chambermaids in the quarter, can actually get there in under three hours and back? Uh, right now, the most of the revenue from the industry goes to places like the Superdome and the Convention Center and the Alario Center. It doesn't go to meet the needs and wishes of the most valuable asset, namely the workers in the city. Now, the other thing I was thinking about is uh, in addition to income and, and assets, the, there's other things that are just kind of a function of that, like not getting enough good health care, things like that. Is it all just one ripple? 
It really depends. The tourism industry is obviously so varied. There are so many sectors within. So you've got people who work in hospitality who actually have uh, about 30% of them uh, in the hotels actually have some form of healthcare. Almost everybody else is screwed. The, the overwhelming majority of the people in the industry, whether they are arts, uh, entertainment, whether they're transportation, have no access to healthcare. And that is abominable. Andrew, one of the things we hear about in tourism is this kind of, oh, I don't even know if you call it quasi or what it is, but a public-private partnership. We've got seemingly a lot of them in the tourism industry. We sure do. You can almost call it an oligarchy. Um, we've got some people at the top who are primarily interested in the sustainability of nothing more than their own riches, rather than the needs and the wishes of the people toiling away in said industry. So once upon a time, you had the New Orleans Tourism Marketing Corporation, and you had the CVB. And then they created an unholy alliance, and the two of them have merged into one, much like some of these angler fish that absorb you know, <laughs> other fish around them and <laughs> I, create their own bloodstream. I don't stream. think anybody's given that analogy, but go ahead. Yeah, not yet. The night is young, and we are at a brewery. More booze! Uh, I mean, that's what everyone says from Iowa on Bourbon Street anyway. Uh, so what we're looking at is a, a group of people who are at the top of the industry who often come directly from the industry. So look at the people who sit on the board. Look at the people who make the decisions as to where tax revenues should go. Are they themselves people with skin in the game? Do they run things like... Uh, maybe I should keep them nameless, but do they have their own paddle boats in the Mississippi River? Do they run their own buses? Have they got their own shuttles from the airport? Have they got their own hotels? Have they got their own tour companies? And they're making decisions on how tax revenues, uh, A, should be collected from whom and distributed to whom? This is criminal. This will be looked at you know, more than askance in the rest of the civilized world. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with Dr. Andrew Ward, an expert in sustainable tourism, and his wife, Allison Albert Ward, founder of Pet Crew, the biggest manufacturer in the Western world of costumes for pets. Allison, you mentioned the, the cat vitamins. I, uh, my dog, if you try to give him vitamins, we put them in these pill pockets to try to hide it, which is what kids, ought, parents ought to do with broccoli and things like that. But this is, you're kind of... It was a little bit of an industry, but the idea that, you know, you're going to make this a big part of your business, how did you decide that? I mean, you are a business person, so some of the ideas work out, some of them don't. How do you think this is going to work? So it kind of started twofold. When we started making dog treats for programs that were in and out programs at Sesame Street, the cat treat buyer uh, was like, do you have anything cool for us? And he's like, no, we don't, sorry. And, uh, and then she kept asking every time we would do a fun new program, do you have anything cool for cats yet? And so coupled with that, the largest two pet acquisitions in the last 12 months were done by Zesty Paws and Nature Vet for around 64X EBITDA. Wow. And it was by private companies still. And so it kind of, I saw those two exits. We had been working on these incredible dog treats that are, we call them Benny Bites, as there, there are benefits to these treats. Uh, and their cat buyer asking us constantly, what's new? What do you have for cats? And so my, and then the final tipping point was my sister's cat got sick because she was feeding it a treat that ended up saying like, this is good for your skin and coat. And it was terrible. It was a reformulated dog uh, treat for cats, but it was the same thing except a smaller size. And that's where I realized that the cat supplement market or vitamin market are just the dog treats from the same companies shrunk down in size for cat mouths, but it's actually bad for cats. Now, Allison, I have to ask you, when you go into a new foray like that, do you just dip your toe in it? How do you decide as a business person? 
So for this one, I was fortunate enough to have um, Pet Crew, our hard goods line, fail enough times to know it would work for <laughs> 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 I love honest guests. <laughs> um, and knowing that if you just build a website, they will not come. This is not the field of dreams. And so I created a lineup of an all-star lineup of people that are just fabulous. And I went through a lot of duds to get there. And so we built out Vitacat.com. We have our So is this kind of an team. advisory board you've put together? No, or these are all consultants. Consultants, okay. And so they're, they're fabulous and they're active consultants. Not the fat cat at the top that says, you should do this and wave a magic wand. These like are people, people in the Wallace Tourism Industry. <laughs> these are people that Andrew? have their hands <laughs> in it. <laughs> and they, so I have my Google team, I have my social media team, and then our manufacturer that we partnered with, uh, we work with the, with a, we work with a cat nutritionist to make sure that all of these are great supplements for cats. And so that's how the magic formula, we decided to launch this as a D2C and not wholesale. But since launching it, we launched it just last month, so it's still relatively new. We're tweaking some formulas. We already have two out of five formulas failed. Um, so one's an, a 50-50% fail of cat desires, and cats are fickle. A successful treat for a cat is considered one-third of the, your tasting population like the treat. That's pretty terrible. This is the stereotype we have always thought for, for cats, by the way. This is... It's confirmed <laughs> with our data. <laughs> uh, but one oh. of the other things, circling back into sustainability, uh, we found that the, the ingredients used in most soft chews for cats need a coagulant, and the best coagulant is palm oil. And so... Now that... I, I always hear that is a tough thing to put make sustainable. That kind of has its issues, right? It is terrible. And there are reports that say either 11 to 19% of all palm oil farming is sustainable farming. And so they are, palm oil is the number one cause for deforestation in South Asia. And so we made sure, we work with the RSPO, which is a round table on sustainable palm oil, and they work to produce certified sustainable palm oil farms. So if you're working and one of your source ingredients is palm oil, you should ask your uh, your source, is this sustainable or not? And yes, you may pay a little bit more, but it, it's significant enough that you should be using it. And the, so when we were also looking at other coagulants, the palm oil, it's estimated that it can produce four to 10 times other oil substitutes like safflower or oil, sunflower oil, soybean, and rapeseed oil. When we found that it produces four to 10 times more than these other coagulant uh, potential substitutions, and that these other substitutions, what that would mean is that they would need to farm more land and it would have the same issue of deforestation. So one of the questions is what do you do? And so you need to make sure that you're working with a group that is certified and that they are responsibly farming it and that they are not going into uh, primitive forests that humans have not gone into before. That's where we're going to unlock diseases. And that's where when you're building a company and scaling it, you're part of the problem. And so you need to ask the right questions when you're launching new products to make sure you're not furthering the problem of our sustainability and climate change. Now, Andrew, you um, grew up, you were a diplomat's kid, so I assume you have great table manners. I, oh, not really <laughs> trying it out on that. But it also means you went a lot of places, and you're very international now. Do you see how other countries are treating tourism, and is there anything 
that you think we should know? Absolutely. So uh, Allison and our son uh, just returned from French Polynesia. And one of the things that's so striking about how they manage the industry is that it is all bottom up, as opposed to how we do it top down. They say, how many people do you want in your community? How many people do you want on your island? 121 islands stretch across a piece of the ocean the size of Europe. And they say, what exactly do you want them to do when they're on your island? They start with the things that people want to share from the community, and then they build a marketing strategy out of that, as opposed to the other way around. And they also target certain people around the world in order to come and stay. You've got places like Bhutan, Rwanda, and French Polynesia who all use what's referred to as boutique tourism. They're very, very choosy about who they want to come to their country and what they do while they're there. And they pay top dollar in order to do so. New Orleans, as you mentioned at the top of the show, brought in 19 million tourists, most of them 51% you know, from a six-hour drive away. Now, Peter, tell me, what's six hours away from New Orleans by drive? Is it the richest states in America? No, no. Best educated states in America? Least no. diseased states in America? I've got a protractor, so I'm trying to <laughs> do this right here. They, uh, and, uh, you know, Andrew, you'd be the best one to ask this to. I, in fact, I think I had this bumper sticker once, but it said New Orleans, third world and proud. Oh, yeah. Um, where do you think we stand? We are, I mean, we have the same Gini coefficient as Zambia. We have such an extraordinary high level of income inequality in the city, hyper-concentrated, with, with about 200 families at the top, owning 88% of the wealth so in the So would city. it be fair to say it's it's a problem nationally, but a particular problem We're in the, New Orleans? We have, only Atlanta has a higher Gini coefficient than we do in all of America. And we have a life expectancy, especially amongst minority groups, roughly on par with places like Ghana. Uh, infant mortality rate in certain populations around the world, around the same range as Moldova. And so we, we say it's a third world country, sort of laughingly, but by all the social and economic indicators, we are. Goes beyond the joke. There we go. <laughs> now, Allison, I got to ask you something that is, you know, I've seen your costumes, they're amazing. Um, first thing I want to ask you though is, you're not. It can't be just this lucky. You've been able to get these these great contracts and partnerships. Uh, you're doing Care Bears now. My favorite Care Bear was Grumpy Bear, but but I don't think that's important <laughs> right here. Noted. As, uh, how how are you? How do you get these? Other people want these kind of relationships. So I think the best thing is. I started off and I went to the Halloween Trade and Expo show that that used to be here in New Orleans. They got pushed out, um, so now they're in Vegas. But at that show, I made. It's, I made a lot of learning mistakes. And so how do you price something even? So how do you make a profitable business? I didn't know. Um, I didn't know particular retail packaging needs. And then when I started to see what people are shopping for and how they shop, the buyers, I started to adjust my entire model. And so the biggest gift I had was going to these shows, observing, making changes. And then as I, by year two or three, I think it was, by year three, I had enough confidence to go up and introduce myself to these large Halloween dealers that do maybe half a billion each in business. It's pretty big. And to just talk to them and to realize that they're humans too and that it doesn't matter how much money they're making, they were at one point my size as well. Nobody woke up and became a $100 million a year company. And I've looked at what you've done and the designing is really beautiful, but I worry all the time, every time I see your, your company, can you be ripped off? I mean, they're great designs, but it wouldn't be that hard to uh, copy them. Oh, sure. You can rip off anything in the design world. It's very easy, not so much in the licensing world. So that's where we started to focus and put more of our 
eggs in that basket. And going forward, we're doing, um, so Sesame Street is our first, and that's why we're proud of it. And then we just signed with Care Bears, and then we have three more underway um, to hopefully close by the end of this year with Paramount. Um, and so you can't rip off a licensed product. You, there's a lot of protections around that. And so that's where we really see the future going to grow out that portfolio. As for the more common costumes, the lion mane, which is, you can see hundreds of people now we selling. We saw that commercial about a hundred million times. Yeah. That was great for Amazon, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And then our pirate has been ripped off a million times over. And anything that's that we do and it starts, um, you see it on social media uh, that goes viral. We expect to see that next year by some, either a one-off, uh, a counterfeit one, if you will, but really it's not. Anybody can take those designs, um, but how well are you going to do it? And do you have a portfolio that buyers want to buy all of your designs? Uh, are you GS1 compliant? Uh, what other certifications does your company have? Are you even insured? Most costumes being sold on Amazon are being shipped directly from China into either Amazon Prime warehouses or being shipped from China on subsidized shipping to the United States. It's not insured. They've never tested their material. So a lot of those costumes, if you buy them and test them, you would find that they have sulfates in them, uh, Prop 65 issues, and that they can cause cancer because they are using materials that we would never use. Wow, that is, uh, you know, Andrew, of all your accomplishments and all the academic degrees you have, the thing that jumped out at me is you were president of a local Rotary Club. And I, I just got to tell you, I love the people in the Rotary. I've given speeches there. But you would not be my first choice. They, uh, you, you must have an amazing... Um, <laughs> it, that, that's a fair assessment. Uh, you know, Rotary International has been around for about 112 years at this point. And one day I was doing fundraising for our concert series in East Africa. I was invited to be a speaker at this club. I'm like, Rotary, what are these? Some sort of like Midwestern people with Pavlovian dog responses to ringing bells. <laughs> and everyone stands and they recite the four-way test. But they were meeting at night at a bar. And I said, thought, okay, this is Here's fabulous. a branch yeah, I can work I'm with. Think, yes. I think I can work with these people. And so I show up, and uh, we go through the meeting, and they proudly declare themselves a drinking club with a service problem. And I said, you know, they, and, you know, this is very interesting to me. And then further they said, well, obviously, because of the work you do and that you've been doing, you're a closet Rotarian. And it's time to proudly declare that you are Rotarian here to stay all day and every day. So I joined, and then my wife joined, who, and my and her dad is a Rotarian, and so we've got it multi-generations in the family. But I'd like to pull on that thread a little bit more, my beautiful, amazing, dynamic, brilliant wife. Uh, certain <laughs> aspects uh, of the growth of Pet Crew have not been fully illustrated here. Your work ethic is par excellence and absolutely unrivaled by anybody else I know. And really the thing that probably your listeners would be most interested in is your fearlessness of trying something new. So she's willing to try cat supplements. How many people wake up in the middle of the night and say, ah, do I have an idea? Plastics, no, cat supplements, <laughs> right? Great and movie then, though. Yeah, exactly. And then at one point in time, she She's, you know, did the numbers, looked at what was going on and said, you know what we need? So many of the people buying our pet costumes also would like a pet horoscope writer. And so our dog Blanche became the all-seeing Blanche, and there she was with the bejeweled turban, and people would check in. Allison? So what he's not saying is that people would check our Instagram stories monthly for these horoscope postings. We had at our highest point. Oh, it's uh, true. It's true. At our, <laughs> we had over a quarter million people reading them at our highest point in our stories. 
And Andrew was the ghostwriter for our dog, Blanche. Yeah. And the saddest thing is, this is the most uh, well-read piece Andrew's ever written. No. <laughs> <laughs> he peaked with dog horoscopes it's, in life. As a ghostwriter. As a yeah. ghostwriter for dog Andrew, horoscopes. Now we're going back to the very beginning. You were uh, a tour guide ghost tour yeah, for person sure. for eight years. So this obviously led to where you are now. Yeah, but you, I guess you did. It did show you a lot about the tourism industry. It absolutely yeah. did. That's what got me interested in the first place. I've been a tour guide since I was 10 years old when I was in Egypt. And one of my first gigs was running around, and all these international visitors would come in, and my dad would be like, go take them around and show them the story, right? So I would take, you know, the visiting tourists, and I would say, ah, behold, this is the tomb of Hatshepsut, or da-da-da-da-da. And then I would pretend to read the hieroglyphics. Peter, I can't read hieroglyphics, <laughs> right? But I could speak Arabic. And I would speak to all the little vendors lined up near the hieroglyphics, and they would look over, like, does this kid know what he's talking about? And all the Egyptians would be like, mm-hmm. And they would sell little pieces of the oh, true cross. They were in on mummies. And I got 10% off of every single oh, one of wow. those handicrafts that was sold. <laughs> and that led eventually to me being a paid ghost story slinger in the streets of the French Quarter, working for Haunted History Tours. Hi, Sydney. Still love you. Miss it. Um, and in that period of time, I was blown away that we as tour guides were doing fairly well, certainly not the top of the heap, but everyone around us was suffering. Cost of living was going up while wages remained stagnant. Millions of tourists more came every single year, but the situation didn't improve for those working in the industry. Whether they were hornblowers or uh, artists on Jackson Square or pedicab drivers, things seemed to be getting more dire for them all the time. So the bright light in my life was meeting Allison, and everything got <laughs> I better can since. See. Now, were you, um, did you scare people? Oh, absolutely, Good, yeah. yeah. I would I would put some money on that. That would be, uh, <laughs> hey, you know, Allison, one other thing we barely touched on is you talked about you had some ideas that didn't work out. You seem to be willing to let them go. There's some people that just, you know, they throw something against the wall, and if it doesn't stick, they tape it up or staple it up or something. You, you don't seem to take it personally. Um, I will say not just because Andrew's my husband, but it is because he's my husband, and he's a wonderful human. My first big failure, he walked me through it, and he said, listen, this is nothing. What are you gonna do? You failed. What are you gonna do next? And his encouragement throughout our entire relationship has just been wonderful. And it's, it never stuck with me after that first major failure, which uh, I was pitching um, for investment dollars, and I couldn't get anywhere, and I was just, I'm like, I'm gonna go under. And then it, while I'm trying to get funding originally, I'm also working my wholesale accounts and my sales division, and I was getting nowhere. And then out of nowhere, I got my first massive six-figure or purchase order. <laughs> um, and I was like, this is amazing. And with that, I was able to get funding and also grow the company. And so it was a matter of pushing through it and just not giving up. And Andrew's encouragement has always been there. In short, Peter, why I just can't let it bother me is we don't have enough time. We have enough irons in the fire that if something fails, something else can still take off. And I learned that early on that if you only have a few SKUs and they fail, well, you did fail. And so in order to navigate that, you're always looking to expand and have more product assortment um, so that something can fail and you just be like, well, Moving on, next one. In that head of yours, you've got another half dozen, dozen ideas, right? Easily. Oh, I can't wait for, well, I can wait. Um, the goal is, of course, to grow this at, uh, well, the clip that we're at is pretty remarkable. Sure uh, there's only so much growth that we can continue to do to have um, our financing still under wraps. Uh, but we've been growing really, really well. Well, you know, when I met you, you were a one-woman show in 18. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, I was. And it's changed a lot since then. 
In the days before social media, traditional media outlets bolstered their reputation as information sources by scooping each other, getting a story first and owning it. These stories were billed as exclusive, meaning it was content you could get in one place and one place only. Today, information spreads around the world in moments. We're all instantly reading and hearing versions of the same content, except that is for the last 30 minutes. Unless you happen to hang out with Andrew and Alice and Albert Ward, it's unlikely you've heard a discussion about pet costumes and sustainable tourism anywhere else recently uh, or ever. Allison and Andrew, as well as being unique, this has been an entertaining and insightful conversation individually and together. You're valuable assets to the city of New Orleans. Thank you both for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you so much, Peter. Workers of the world unite. <laughs> My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Allison Albert Ward, CEO and founder of Pet Crew, and Andrew Ward, Assistant Professor of Political Science and International Development at Tulane University. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on WWNO. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Allison's pet costumes and Andrew's contributions to New Orleans and beyond by listening to the Out to Lunch podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch podcast on your podcast app and on our website, it's neworleans.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at lafleurphoto.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WW... How could I screw that one up? As I do that, uh, 850 guests later... Um, out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. And our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Peter Raschuti. <coughs> I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business, New Orleans style, on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch was recorded live over lunch at the NOLA Brewing Tap Room, 3001 Chapatula Street, open seven days a week. NOLA Brewing Tap Room has a wide variety of craft beers and authentic hand-tossed New York-style city pizza by NOLA Pizza. More information is at nolabrewing.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. And by Basics Swim and Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie. And by the It's New Orleans Happy Hour podcast. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.